I'll be reading from Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Colossians 4, 7. As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bond slave in the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, whom is one of your number, they will inform you about the whole situation here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas, his cousin Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Epaphras, who is one of your number, is a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are at Laodicea and Eropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings, and also Demas. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea, and also Nympha, and the church that is in her house. And when this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. I will pray. Father, I thank you, God, for all of your word and for what you've given us here. And we again, Lord, just come together in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, wanting to hear from you and taught of you, God, that our hearts would be yours and that you would be honored and glorified within us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, as you can see, we're wrapping up Colossians this morning. And in this last section that I just read, beginning in verse 7, there are ten different individuals mentioned. Eight of them are traveling companions of Paul. And it's one of those sections of Scripture you go, do we really need to preach on it? Um, and I, I, I can't get out of my head 2 Timothy 3.16, which says, All Scripture is inspired by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And that includes passages like this. So there's a reason it's here. It is the inspired, eternal Word of God, and it's here for a purpose. We're not just supposed to pass over it and say, well, there's no doctrine here, there's no application here, it's just a list of names, let's move on. It's here for a reason. What is that reason? I don't know. Uh, I have some thoughts, I'll share those thoughts, I've been thinking about this a lot. And, um, and, I, and I, I feel like it, it, is a, it is a very profitable passage of Scripture when we think of it in its context. And the context, broader than the context of the letter of Colossians itself, but the context of the Greek-Roman world in which Paul was living when he commends these people to the Colossian church. This is Grandparents' Day. Um, I wouldn't have known that except one of my kids told me that it's Grandparents Day and that's great. 
wonderful being a grandparent. We had two of our grandsons with us on the way to church this morning. And little Ford has a runny nose. And so Patsy handed him a, hand, a um, Kleenex and said, blow your nose. And he's strapped into his car seat. And so, and he's got it apparently all over his face. And so Patsy, ah, and so he's pull over. So I, I pull over and he goes, it's okay, Nana, I can use my tongue. And <laughs> grandkids are wonderful. Now, one of our jobs as a grandparent is to teach our grandchildren, as their mom and dad are doing, no, it's not right to use your tongue. And, and I'm sure that this thought would be, then, why do I have a tongue? But you don't use your tongue for that. And this is where that civilizing process comes in. God has given us parents to teach us how to behave. And you blow your nose, not in your hand, but in a Kleenex. And if it comes out of the Kleenex, you get another Kleenex. You don't use your tongue. Now, I tell you that little story because things are getting bad in our society. Um, I mean, there, we know. I mean, there's not a day that goes by that we don't turn on the TV or read something on the Internet, and we're just going, really? It's amazing. I mean, Drew Brees apparently is catching all kinds of flack now, quarterback for the New Orleans Saints, because he made a video saying, kids, bring your Bibles to school. And the problem is, is that he made that video in conjunction with Focus on the Family, and Focus on the Family has taken a very public stand and said that marriage is between one man and one woman. So Focus on the Family is hated because of a traditional biblical view of marriage. And Drew Brees has aligned himself with Focus on the Family. So he obviously hates homosexuals. And he is just having all kinds of attack heaped on him. That's the society that we're living in. And as bad as it is, it is nothing like it was in Paul's day. I spent a little time this week researching some of the history of the Caesars of the Roman Empire. The first was Caesar Augustus. He was the one that would have been alive during the, the life of Jesus. And then after him was Tiberius, and he was Caesar from A.D. 27 to 37. And so he was the one that was um, on the throne when Jesus was crucified, 27 to 37. That guy was bad. And they just get worse. None of them were good. I mean, there is not a single one that you'd go, how could that guy ever rise to power? He's not a good man. None of them. Tiberius, he um, retreated out of Rome to an island, and he spent most of his days living on this island. And it became infamous for all the sexual immorality that was taking place there. And it was terrible. And when he got tired of using people, and many times it was just for one party, he'd bring in children, he'd bring in all kinds of people, boys, girls, men and women, for a party, and he would sexually abuse them, and when he was finished with them, he would throw them off the cliff. Not let them go back home, he'd just throw them off the cliff. It was called Tiberius's Leap, because he would just chunk them off the cliff. 
The next guy, following Tiberius, married his horse and his sister. Nobody thinks anything about it. Nero, we all know about Nero. Um, he was the guy that torched, literally dipped in oil and impaled Christians and Jews and lit the streets of Rome with their burning bodies. He married two men and was regularly sleeping with his mother. And it just gets worse from there. And these, this is the society, can't even call it that, that was the world, the culture, that Paul was writing to the Colossians within. And you wonder, was everybody like that? And you look around you, read your newspaper, walk through the marketplace, and you wonder, is, there, is it just complete insanity? Moral insanity. And it was so common, it was beyond oppressive. And if your life was different than the lives of the world that you were living in, like we are finding today, you were absolutely despised, hated, and persecuted for simply being different. Because in their world, that the gods and their pantheon of deities, if they weren't happy, then everything moved into chaos. And as they looked at their world, they didn't see chaos. The rains were coming, the crops were producing, the armies were victorious, things were good. And so obviously the gods are not unhappy with the way that they're living. They're pleased. So we must be doing something right. And if you're going to live differently, then if the empire crumbles, it's because of you, not because of us. They literally believe that. And that was the excuse, one of the excuses that Nero used for torching Christians. Because they were living differently and they would be the, they would be the fault for the crumbling of the Roman Empire in Nero's mind. So he felt fully justified to kill them so as to preserve the empire. We're moving into those days. We're simply to say marriage is between a man and a woman that we can be vilified, and be called hate mongers, and that we're the problem in society. This is nothing new. And in that context, Colossians was written. And Paul lists 10 people by name who are the exception. That had to be a deep encouragement. As bad as things are, Paul says, look around you. In fact, let me help you. And he names 10 individuals in this letter who were bright, shining lights. In the course of Paul's epistles, he actually names 100 people. 26 alone in his last chapter to the Romans. Paul was a person who was focused on what Jesus was doing to redeem lives out of the cesspool of the Roman culture. And they were bright, shining lights all around. hundred people that Paul mentions in his letters. Twenty-six in Romans alone. We received a letter this week, the staff at His Hill, from one of our students from last year. 
German girl. And I've never received a letter like this. We've gets a few bad ones on occasion, a few good ones. But this girl wrote a four or five page handwritten letter listing every single staff person individually and saying, I want to tell you this is how God used you in my life. This is how I've seen Jesus in you. She says, I've never been with a group of people that so clearly manifest Christ as this group of people. What a blessing. So I photocopied it and put a copy in all the staff's mailboxes because I thought they need not only read what she said about them, but what she said about the rest of the staff. Such a blessing and encouragement to know we aren't alone. And that's what this girl, any takeaway she had from Bible school is, I'm blessed to know there are people in this world that are different, and I'm thankful for it. There are good people in this world, even in the Roman Empire, as morally bankrupt as it was. Paul says, let me tell you about some exceptions. I hope you can begin to see some application here. Before we even get in, I'm going to get into all the details of these ten individuals briefly with them, because Paul doesn't give us a lot of information. But this is where I'm moving with this. We all struggle at times with feeling isolated, feeling um, like nobody really understands us, that nobody's really hurting maybe like we are, nobody's really struggling like we are. You're wondering if you're crazy sometimes, even within the church. You feel so different. And, and, may, and it may just be hurt and, and loneliness. And then God gives us a section of scripture like this that is for us, that we might profit from this. And so I got to thinking, I think that way sometimes. I know my wife thinks that way sometimes. I remember a pastor I know used to pastor a very large church, and he was lonely. And he told me, he says, you know, Charlie, everybody thinks that, that my wife and I are just busy all the time. And he says, we sit at home, and nobody ever calls us. And says, would you like to go out to dinner? And I thought, man, that guy's been in that church for, I think it was close to 40 years. And, and he feels lonely because no one reaches out to him. And I thought, that's sad. And I, I talk to people from time to time um, that feel the same. In the midst of the body of Christ, they feel isolated and lonely. Nobody's reaching out to them. Nobody's calling them. And I read this passage of Scripture, and it says to me, Paul was kind of going through the church directory of Colossians. And he says, let me just go through the directory with you here, folks. This isn't the whole directory, but these are people you know. You've, you've had interaction with a number of these people. Two of them, at least, were people in that church, and probably much, many more of the ten. And his point is, there's no reason in this decaying society where we are the lights in the world, there is no reason for you to feel isolated and alone. Look around you. 
there are very good people around you. And in our situation, I would say, if you're lonely and isolated, maybe you should get the church directory out. And maybe you should take the initiative to call up somebody and say, could we have lunch together sometime? Instead of waiting for somebody to call you, call them up. How about coming over for dinner? How about having lunch? It doesn't have to be every week. It doesn't have to be every month. But I'd like to get to know you better. I just want to get to know you. Let's talk about how we can pray for each other. Maybe you could attend a home group. We've got three that are operating here in this church. And what a great way to get connected, to feel like you're not alone, and to realize there are very good people in this body. Super people. You don't need to think you're the only one. Far from it. I read this list of people and I think, One of the things that Paul would have been doing is setting up in the minds of these people because he's writing from prison and though he expected to be released and in fact he was released, we know, his life was constantly under threat, constantly being persecuted. He had been stoned. He had been beaten. And really, this is a guy who could die at any time. And I wonder how many people would have been, been tempted to think Paul's indispensable. What's going to happen to us if Paul dies? And Paul writes this at the end of his letter and just starts listing people. And he goes, you know what? The all-sufficient Jesus doesn't depend upon me. He's got lots of people he can use. He is constantly raising up people. And he does not need Paul. Thank God for Paul. But if it wasn't Paul, Jesus would be using somebody else. So Paul's kind of setting the table a little bit here. If I should die, don't panic. Jesus is still in control. He is the all-sufficient God. And he's got good people that he's already using. And you're going to be fine. I think it's safe to assume that every person in this list is someone who is under attack and in need of prayer. And so Paul commends them, he he praises them, but he's also, it would have been apparent that these are targets and they need prayer. We know that no one is an island. We each come to Jesus individually and alone, but we are part of a body and we need each other. Yes, Jesus is all-sufficient. And he is all that I need. But Jesus ministers to me and meets my needs through people. And that's, again, one of the reasons that Paul would have been mentioning all these individuals. So let's get into the the nitty-gritty a little bit here. Chapter 4, verse 7, As to all my affairs, he mentions the first person here is Tychicus. And he says, he is our beloved brother and faithful servant. 
and fellow bond slave in the Lord, and he will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him I have sent Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number. So he goes to your church. They will inform you about the whole situation here. So he groups these two men together, um, Tychicus and Onesimus. And he says concerning the first, he calls him a beloved brother, a bond slave of the Lord, a faithful servant. Paul relied upon this man. One person has said the greatest ability is dependability. And this was a man that was dependable. And Paul appreciated him greatly. He risked everything by associating with Paul the way that he did. May have himself been in prison because of his association with Paul. Onesimus was the runaway slave that Paul wrote about when he wrote the little letter of Philemon. Philemon's slave who ran away, went to Paul, found Paul in Rome. Paul led him to Christ and said, now that you're a Christian, you're actually more obligated to submit to your master, not less obligated. Yes, your master is now your brother in Christ, but he is still your master. Go back and submit. And so he put that letter in Onesimus's hand and said, go back. And apparently, they were from the city of Colossae. And so Onesimus would have been going to this church, more than likely, with his master before he was even saved. And now he's saved, and he goes back as a brother. And Paul commends this runaway slave, who has not been a Christian very long, as faithful and beloved. Pretty amazing. And this man can expect to suffer for being a Christian, to suffer as being a slave, and perhaps to even suffer because he ran away from his master. And that's one of the reasons that Paul wrote to Philemon was to mitigate that punishment that he might be receiving. So he calls both these men faithful, calls them beloved. These are good men. And they're right there in the midst. He sends them to inform them of Paul's circumstances so that they would pray for Paul but, and, and to encourage their hearts. Well, how can they be encouraged by knowing that Paul's in prison? Because what Paul was suffering was not the exception. We're studying Job with Jeff in the adult Sunday school class, and, and it's very, very clear there. The expectation was that if you walk with God, you won't suffer. And Paul's going, I think I'm walking with God and I'm suffering. Be encouraged. Okay, it doesn't mean that when you suffer, there's something wrong. It could mean that you're suffering because there's nothing wrong. And the world hates those who are the salt and light of this world. He did not write to them and send these two men to inform of his circumstances so as to get their pity, but to strengthen them. That kind of convicts me. Now, I find myself sharing things with people because I want their pity, not because I'm thinking of them and wanting to encourage and strengthen them. He wrote in Philippians much of the same thing, Philippians chapter 1, 12 to 14. He says that, that he wants them to know that his imprisonment has resulted in the word of God going forth and that many within the Praetorian Guard are putting their faith in Christ, that these things were working for the advancement of the gospel. The Christian 
who is operating from the mind of Christ is encouraged by the very things that may discourage others because he sees Christ in the circumstances and he can see beyond the immediate of what's happening. Aristarchus, in verse 10, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings. We don't know a lot about Aristarchus. He's another Jewish believer. He was a traveling companion of Paul. He was originally from Thessalonica. He was the guy that when Paul was in Ephesus and the whole city began rioting because they were turning away from the, from the goddess of that city, and there was literally a, a huge riot in the Colosseum they had there in Ephesus, and, and the rioters hauled Aristarchus as a Christian into the midst to try and find out what was going on. He could have died at that point. He sailed with Paul to Rome, and he was shipwrecked with him according to Acts 27. This is a guy who's been in association with Paul for a long time, and Paul deeply appreciates him, and at this point, he seems to be in prison with Paul. Then Paul mentions um, John Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. It was Mark who wrote the gospel of Mark. It's Mark that in that gospel, Mark talks about, and he says, there was, um, at, at the arrest of Jesus, there was one that they grabbed hold of him and ripped his, his garment off of him, and he fled through the night naked. That was probably Mark that ran away naked from the arrest of Jesus. It was Mark that went on the first missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas. And it was Mark who left them. We're never told why. Something happened. Maybe there was too much persecution. We don't know. But Mark bailed out of that missionary journey and abandoned them. And so after a period of time when Paul and Barnabas said, we want to do another missionary journey, we want to go back and encourage those churches that we've been to, Barnabas says, let's go get Mark. And Paul said, not in my lifetime. And they, almost, and they split over it. Barnabas took Mark and, and Paul refused to. But God used Barnabas. And now Barnabas has become a faithful, stable worker in Christ. And Paul speaks to him and says, Mark, about whom you receive instruction, if he comes to you, welcome him. There's a huge turnaround in Mark's life. And God even uses him to write the gospel of Mark. He mentions this fellow who has the name of Jesus, who is also called Justice, probably because they didn't want to call him Jesus, These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision. Meaning all five of these men that he mentioned are Jews. All five are Jews, fellow workers of the kingdom of God, and all of them are a deep personal encouragement to Paul. And then he mentions Epaphras in verse 12, who is one of your number. So this is a guy that went to their church also, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, He sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect, fully assured of the will of God. I bear him witness that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Aeropolis. So this may be the man who actually founded the church in Colossae. It seems that he was led to Christ by Paul through Paul's ministry to the Ephesians. He possibly also founded the churches in Laodicea and Oropolis. Paul calls him beloved, faithful, 
bond servant, faithful servant. He is noted for his praying. It was constant. It was laboring. It was earnest. And he's noted for his deep concern for these people of these churches. It's a good man. Constantly, fervently seeking after God on the behalf of others. Tremendous fellow, this Epaphras. And then Paul moves to Luke. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings and also Demas. Luke was also a regular traveling companion of Paul's. And we know that Luke was the author of the Gospel of Luke and also the author of the book of Acts. Very significant person. So two of these people that Paul's commended wrote scripture. Now again, think about this. We'd be tempted to think that Paul was the greatest Christian who ever lived and that when Paul dies, the church is impoverished. The church was not dependent on Paul. The church of Jesus Christ. These are men that God has raised up and that God is using. Were any of them more filled with the Holy Spirit than another? No. Two of these men wrote inspired scripture. You can't be a lightweight and be used of God to write inspired scripture. You had to have been completely filled with the Spirit of God, completely under the Spirit's control, that every single word of what you wrote is God writing through you. That was true for Mark, and that was true for Luke. All of Luke, all of Acts, all of the Gospel of Mark by these two individuals. They're not less significant than Paul. God's used Paul differently. We don't know hardly anything about some of these people, but Paul is saying these are men who know Jesus, they're walking with him, God has raised them up, and they are good people. He doesn't really say anything about Demas other than he sends his greetings. It may have been, some speculate, that because there's really nothing that Paul says, just also Demas in verse 14, that Paul was already becoming concerned about him. When Demas is first mentioned in Philemon, verse 24, he's called a fellow worker. Now in Colossians 4, nothing's said about him. And in 2 Timothy 4.10, we're told that he has loved this world and he has deserted me, Paul says. So he's a man who turned away from the Lord. Nympha is mentioned as the lady in, whom, who, in, whom, in whose house the church at Colossae was meeting. And then verse 16, And when this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. We don't, we don't know that there was a letter um, to Laodicea. If there was, we have no record of it. Some historians believe this was the letter written to the Ephesians that was being circulated to the Laodiceans, and now Paul is saying circulate it back to, to the Colossians. We know that his letters were moved around from, from church to church. Paul had a real sense that his letters were the inspired word of God, and that's why he's saying read them in the various churches, because you didn't read in the churches that which was not authoritative. And he recognizes there's something supernatural here about these letters, and he wants them read. And then he says, the last person he mentions, he speaks of um, Archippus. Take 
heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord. This may be the acting um, teaching elder of the church. We don't want to say pastor because none of these churches had a single pastor. But they did have some people that were more in a teaching position than others, and they were recognized for that. And that seems, seems to be the case of this man here, um, Archippus, or Archippus, however you want to say his name. And he says, he says a, spe- a specific admonition to him that he is to take heed to the ministry which you received from the Lord and fulfill it. Application. These types of elders, all elders, but in particular these teaching elders, need encouragement and admonition to not get their eye off the ball. I'll never forget my graduation um, commencement um, speaker from Dallas Seminary was the pastor from California, E.V. Hill. And if you've ever heard E.V. Hill preach, you will remember it. Phenomenal preacher, African-American guy, and um, and I tell you, when he preached, and I don't remember much, but I I remember him saying, he gave a couple of illustrations, one of the football player that scooped up the fumble and and turned and started running for the opponent's goal. And we've all heard the story, and his own teammates were running after him, trying to tackle him before he scored a touchdown for the opposing team. And all I can remember, E.V. Hill was shouting at us, this room full of men that are about to graduate, men and women graduating from Dallas Seminary, for God's sake, run in the right direction. Powerful stuff. And that's what Paul is saying here in Archippus. Don't take your eye off the ball. You've been given a ministry, not from Paul, but from God. Take heed to that ministry. It is from the Lord. It is about the Lord. It isn't an achievement, that ministry that you've been given. It's an assignment. There are specific aspects of it that can be fulfilled. There are aspects of ministry that can never be, you can never just say, well, that's done, let's move on. Seeing somebody brought into, into maturity in Christ. It's a constant process for all of us. But there are some things that you can say, that's been done. That is being done. And in particular, the aspects of ministry that can be fulfilled. I think it comes down, and I'm stealing this from somebody else, preaching the word and praying for God's people. Preaching and praying. These are the two primary things that that church elders are commissioned in God's word to do. Nothing else really comes down. Not there's nothing else, but those are the two main things. The handling of God's word and the praying for God's people. And Paul says, remind Archippus to do these things. And then finally, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, often finished up his letters by doing so. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. A couple of final thoughts. Five of these men, the first five mentioned, seem to be Jewish men. The reason that would have been significant is because there's only one morality 
in the Bible. There's not an Old Testament moral standard and a New Testament moral standard. If there were two moralities in the Bible, an Old Testament standard and a New Testament morality, you might as well say we have two gods. We don't. There's not an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. There's one God. So there's only one morality. Now here's the thing. The Jewish religion was teaching a biblical morality. The same biblical morality we teach. It's not two different moralities. Those Jewish people were being taught what family structure looks like, just like we are taught what family structure looks like. The difference was not the morality between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The difference is, under Old Testament law, there was no power to see a person change. Because the law has no power to transform somebody's life. The New Testament, we're under the new covenant, and Christ is the power for the morality that is demanded of us. But it's the same morality. Okay? Because it's one God. And all that is ethical and moral derives from God. So, one of the reasons that Paul would have gone to the Jew first and Paul would have had Jewish traveling companions is because these men have the morality and have been living the morality that they're going to be teaching to others. But by being Christians, they're not pointing people to the law because there's no power to change in the law. But they're going to say the morality that you see in our lives is not because of Judaism, but because it is because of Jesus Christ. But, he can, but these are people who have been brought up in a culture that's not Roman. So they're not marrying their horse. They're not, they're not marrying men. There weren't Jewish men that, that the, the morality of the Bible of the Old Testament would never have condoned marrying your horse or, or marrying men. And so their culture was different. But these men, by being believers... You knew their culture was not a result personally of the law, but it was a result of their faith in Jesus Christ. So these are guys who were, who, whose DNA had been and, and, and was different from the world that Paul was ministering within. And so they were examples, living examples, of what was being taught in the Word of God. So he would have brought these men into that sphere, traveling with them, so that others could see that what he was preaching was doable by the person of Jesus Christ. There is no power to change in the law, no power of regeneration in the Mosaic law. But Paul's friends were people who were regenerate, and they were living out the moral revelation of Scripture. They were lights in the world. And guess what? Even in Paul's day, there had never been a people who had been more hated in the world than the Jewish people. And Paul was saying, these Jews, Jewish men know what it is like to be hated and persecuted for no reason other than being good and being gods. So they would have been powerful witnesses to the pagan culture, and in particular, Gentiles coming out of that culture as they came to Christ, that it is possible to live a life that honors Jesus and reflects Christ in this world. They were not morally superior. They were not better. 
And they were in and of themselves, but they were different. And it was because of Christ and the power of his life within them. Summarizing this letter, it really, there is, comes down, as I've said all through it from the very beginning, there is nothing more than what we have already received when we receive Christ. Nothing more that we will ever need. And again, these men were not to be substitutes for Christ, not to be those that they depend upon in this place of Christ, but these men are simply living examples of what Paul has been talking about, the sufficiency of Jesus Christ to transform a life. I don't remember where I got these two quotes from. One person said, we should beware of any teaching that claims to give us something more than we already have in Christ. And another, all of God's fullness is in Jesus. And Jesus has perfectly equipped us for the life that God wants us to live. We do not live and grow by addition, but by appropriation. It's a great statement. We do not live and grow by addition. There is nothing more you need than Jesus Christ. But we live and grow by appropriation. We appropriate by faith Christ in all that he is. This has been a very, for me, um, powerful reminder that Jesus is truly preeminent, sovereign, and he is sufficient. We can be so discouraged in this world, especially as we see the Judeo-Christian ethic vanishing. We don't need to be. We know the end of the story. But more than that, we know Jesus is sufficient. There is nothing we're going to go through than what the God who created this world, sustains this world, and lives within us is not sufficient for And we have examples all around us, including in this church, where people have lived lives and are living lives that are proving the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. There is no reason to throw in the towel and every reason to be encouraged and blessed with all that Jesus is and what he is doing in the lives of people around us. I'll close us in prayer. God, I do thank you so much for this book and the revelation that you've given here of Christ and his sufficiency. Thank you, God, for the simple truth that he is enough. And I also thank you, God, for how you've concluded this book in reminding us that there are people all around us that are living proof that Jesus lives, he transforms lives, and he is sufficient for anything that this world and the God of this world, the devil, would dish out on us. We're grateful, God, for that. That Jesus, the one who created this world, is infinitely greater than the one who calls himself the God of this world. That we, in Christ, 
are victorious and that you have made us adequate for this life that you have given us. It's not in ourselves, but in Christ. And that you have blessed us with everything that pertains to life and godliness in him. Lavished upon us the grace of God. And we thank you, Jesus. Our trust is in you and in you alone. In Christ's name, amen.